is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 222, From the Backseat of a Fighter to the Front Seat of a Warbird with Roy Brewer, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome to the Stuck Mike Avcast. My name is Carl Valerian. and today we have a special episode and a guest, Roy Brewer. Before we get started with that, I uh, just want to kind of say hello and welcome to a, another special episode where we have some interviews. If you have any kind of an interview that you want us to do or you're a guest that wants to come on and talk about your book, your product, etc., make sure you go to stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to visit aviationcareerspodcast.com and look at the scholarships guide there. Uh, there's scholarships for everybody who want to move forward in their careers, but also who want to move forward in different ratings. So make sure you check that out, aviationcareerspodcast.com, and uh, that's slash scholarships. Another thing I'm doing, I know you've heard me talk a lot about, is that I'm the coach of the Polk State College flight team, and we'd love for you to help out by donating to the flight team. The donations go towards helping the students compete in the competition coming up right here in Lakeland, Florida. And you can find more at... Uh, polkstateflightteam.com slash donate. Uh, really appreciate any type of help there. And by the way, if you know somebody who's a bigger sponsor, uh, if they sponsor over from $500 or more, they actually get their name on the shirt. It's a great way to advertise and also help out the students compete uh, during this competition. It's a collegiate flight team, and you've heard me talk about it in the past. If you want to find out more, click on the link here at polkstateflightteam.com. Now entering cruise flight. Well, today, like I said, we have a special guest with us, and it's somebody you've actually heard on this podcast before because of the fact we've done interviews at uh, Sun and Fun, and uh, Sun and Fun Radio is comprised of many different volunteers, and some of those volunteers uh, do different jobs that you may not see up front on the deck uh, by editing, or they're out there uh, helping out with usher people onto the deck, etc., or the engineers, making sure you know the lights come on at the right time. Well, Roy Brewer is one of those, and Roy, uh, welcome to Stuck Mike Avcast, man. It's been great to have you here. Thank you, Carl. It's a pleasure to be here today. And uh, like I say, we've got a long history at Sun and Fun Radio. And so we're the guys usually stuck in the box at the back (laughs) editing. So every once in a while, we come out, squint uh, at everybody uh, based on the bright sunlight, and then go back in for more editing. So at uh, another plug for Sun and Fun Radio, you know, they're doing podcasts, and it's all year long. Uh, You can actually go to... Uh, Sun and Fun Radio, flysnf.org. I think everybody wants us to go there now and click on Sun and Fun Radio. And they can actually listen, liveatc.net slash snf, and listen right now uh, to some of the recordings that we've actually done. Absolutely, and we're going to be putting in more um, of the recordings uh, coming up here soon. They'll be available on um, iTunes or whatever your devices are. 
uh, using, and we'll be adding more to that of the interviews from the deck uh, for this past year. And so that's coming up here soon, loading more. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear some of those interviews. It's been terrific. Now, Roy, uh, you and I, I know for years we've been on the deck and working together on Sun and Fun Radio, but you have quite a varied background. Uh, Before we get into that, you've been around Sun and Fun for quite some time, haven't you? Yeah, I think it's either seven or eight years I've been coming to Sun and Fun, and um, I got to know some of the people that were volunteering for the radio station, and uh, I've been doing that now for about four years. And recently, um, Dave asked me to co-chair the um, auditing or, or the uh, editing section. Not auditing. I watch him a lot, but it's uh, more editing than <laughs> Sometimes you do anything. need to audit him. <laughs> yeah, I audit to make sure they're doing the editing, and also I do some of the editing. So I uh, stepped up to that this past year, and our next uh, event is going to be the land and we've got some um, live online interviews coming up, and that's uh, November the uh, the weekend of November fourteenth. I think is the first day, first day. So thirteenth is on a Wednesday, and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and we'll be doing that live. And that's pretty interesting that you're going to do that. I think it's what this year is November fourteenth through the sixteenth. I just looked it up. It's the Deland Sport Aviation Showcase, and I know that Dave has uh, been a big part of uh, putting together a live show there. And I, I think I might be there. I, uh, no promises, but hopefully I'll, I'll make it there. And uh, th- by the time this comes out, I'll, I'll have made up my mind whether I can make it or not. Well, it has to come down to work if I get the time off. Yeah, we're we're hoping you'll be there. And uh, Mike Daniels and Dave Shawbetter and I will be there. Uh, for one team and if you are able to make it then we probably split and have two teams interviewing yeah that'd be awesome uh and dave by the way you mentioned dave dayshell better the chairman of sun and fun radio will be out there but uh but that's our background with sun and fun but you know roy we're here for you you know one of the things that i've wanted to do for a while is talk to you and talk to obviously a lot of the volunteers but you have this incredible background uh in aviation uh, and it's been this incredibly varied different path through your love of aviation. And you really are uh, a truly passionate person when it comes to flying and flying small airplanes. Uh, but it started, interestingly enough, uh, in the military. And uh, so let's kind of step back through through Roy and, uh, you know, what does a volunteer do at Sun and Fun? Well, a volunteer at Sun and Fun, what they do is many different things, but their backgrounds are incredibly varied, and that's why we're doing this interview right now, is we want to find out more about, about who is it. Who is it that's part of that? And who is that part of Stuck Mike Avcast? So, Roy, you actually uh, got your start in aviation uh, in the military, I think it was. Or, but how did you actually find out uh, about this this aviation thing and how did the bug start well in um the first time i got in an airplane was on the way to basic training for the military so i was enlisted and they gave me a career field that i would be overseas remote all the time and so i was able to transfer out of that into an avionics um, job so i was um, avionics and onboard technician for a number of years Uh, based on certain calibrations like angle of attack had to be done in flight rather than on the ground and some of the work on um, sextants for navigation uh, had to be done in the air we calibrate them sextant yeah they were still (laughs) b-52s and kc-135s were still using sextants and so we had to maintain the equipment and make sure that um, everybody was um up to speed on things and so occasionally for a new navigator 
we'd go up and give them some additional instruction in flight, uh, things along that line. So uh, that's how I got the start in the avionics career, both ground and in the air. So let me understand this. An avionics technician on board, you mean on board actually in the aircraft? Yes, we, we flew on the missions anytime there was maintenance to be performed or we were having um, some uh, repeat occurrences maybe that someone else had fixed, then the onboard avionics uh, people would kind of take over because we were the more experienced people. So That's fascinating. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize that, is that there are actually these people that are on board that actually can fix the aircraft while it's flying. Yeah, we, we had uh, – there were a few of us. Um, now, jet engine mechanic, they're kind of out of luck. They have to do their thing on the ground because I don't think being strapped to the pylon out there would help them any. But uh, get rather cold and windy. Was, yeah. Yeah, I, I keep correcting people when they tell me they get in an airplane and go somewhere. I tell them it's cold and windy. Get inside. It's a whole lot better. <laughs> so now I've got them responding that they get in the airplane. So I'm conditioning some people. Yeah, I'm sure you are. You know, one of the things that I think uh, a lot of people don't realize is that this uh, opportunity in, in the Air Force, Army, Navy, all the, the forces out there, they, there are so many good opportunities for people because it'll pay for your education. You didn't actually pay for that education. They paid for it. Yeah, they paid for it. It um, took nine years to finish the baccalaureate degree because of temporary duty and shifts and different things like that but uh, once I got it nine years then I applied for commissioning so I was enlisted for 10 years and officer for 10 years before I retired so is it true that uh, officers have to have a degree is that pretty much yes. true yeah okay so that's uh, and and for all your career you were in the same uh, service in Air Force or Yes, okay. I, I was in the Air Force for uh, almost 20 years to the day oh, wow. uh, before I retired because I went in a little bit later. And so by the time I got out, I was 41. And so if I didn't start another career, it might be difficult to get into one. So it was a choice, spend 20 or 30. And so I wanted to go ahead and start a second career. Well, that's cool. Now, as far as the airplanes that you got to sit in the back of before you actually were in the cockpit, mm -hmm. in other words, the avionics tech, you mentioned a B-52. What other aircraft did you uh, get to fly Well, in? we uh, we had some really old airplanes when I came in. So there were C-118s and T-29s, the wow. cargo-type version. Um, also worked on some fighter aircraft, uh, pretty much anything that came in transit. I had the experience and ability to work on it, so sometimes we would have them um, um, go look up certain things and be able to do them on these transit aircraft, but I maintained uh, Air Force, Navy, and Army, and some Marine aircraft transit, and the primary airplanes at the first base were B-52s. We were in a double bomb wing, so it means that we had twice as much, and uh, KC-135s, and that's... Uh, back when we had what we call the Christmas tree, where B-52s were on alert, and uh, so were the KC-135s to be able to refuel. So uh, that's the start of it, and I volunteered worldwide at one point, thinking I was going to get out of Strategic Air Command, so they sent me to Okinawa in a Strategic Air Command unit that was there that I didn't know about. 
So no escaping, pretty much. No, that's for sure. You know, interestingly, going back, I mean, we had this, uh, and we still do have this show of force out there in the world, but many of these bases have transferred to civilian uh, fields, like, for instance, uh, Ramey Air Force Base down in uh, in uh, Puerto Rico, you know, Barrancan, Aguadilla. That whole base is now part of that town, and it's a, mm-hmm. it's a thriving community. There's a lot of pavement out there. Yeah, base realignment and closure um, got to some of the Air Force installations and other branches of service, too. But what they did in this realignment, some were closed, and that was Ramey, for example, uh, in Puerto Rico. But also we've had some that become composite bases, and they put a lot of the guard units and different branches of service there, like Fort Worth is a combined base. Um, And so mixture of everything but there's still a lot of air force bases available if people are looking to travel the world yeah luckily we're here in lakeland florida we get to go visit uh, and i'm going tomorrow to to mcdill and uh, i always mix it up with mcguire because that's what i grew up next to is another one called mcguire and uh you know my dad was in lakehurst which is a naval air station which Mm -hmm. actually has been uh, sucked into the the mcguire so it's quite interesting to see during brac even though I remember at the time when I was younger, uh, coming out of college, I was kind of when that was happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were quite upset about all this, and it was. Uh, it actually, I think, worked out for the best and efficiency-wise. It did. I think. Well, it does. A lot of communities embraced it uh, from a standpoint of repurposing the land, um, and so a lot of those uh, communities that were losing bases and uh, a lot of the job market uh, were able to turn that around. Uh, Some others, not so much, but um, like, for example, my airplanes are based here at Bartow, which is an old World War II training base, and I think the last uh, active duty airplane they had was T-37s, but the little museum that they've set up there at the FBO uh, near the restaurant, uh, great setup and gives you the history and quite a bit of memorabilia in there, but it's got pretty good history, so there's a lot of those out there with a whole lot of concrete. Yeah, there are. Uh, Lakeland is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Bartow is another. And, and, you know, we put a video together a long time ago about visiting Bartow. And I, I tell you, you don't realize there's like over 100, close to 200 different fields here that were used for training uh, in the state of Florida. And those have actually been, actually some have been changed into, you know, industry. But a lot of them been handed over to the towns, like Lakeland Linder. International Airport. Yeah, pretty much any time you fly over Florida, if you look down and see three runways, that was one of the old World War II training bases, and a lot of them are still active, like Apalachicola. Uh, they don't maintain all three, but there are several that do, and Bartow is one of those that all three runways are still active. So if you're out there flying around your GA aircraft, make sure you go check out some of those and mm-hmm. fly uh, uh, Brooksville's one. I mean, there's all sorts of neat things that you can see from the air. Some of them that have been shut down, you can actually still see the runways, even though they're industrial complexes. Uh, Arcadia's one. And there's there's many out there. And there's some really cool books that you can buy about the history of aviation here in Florida. And we'll have mm-hmm. a link to that. Arcadia Press did a wonderful book about that, about the history of aviation in Florida. It's a wonderful read. And and uh, I highly recommend uh, anybody to pick that up. And uh, it goes over all those different bases, even here in Lakeland, uh, you know, Lodwick. We have uh, – and we have uh, actually uh, a uh – 
a field that's not just an airfield. It's now a baseball field. And they have a runway there. That's uh, It's actually an area where people can come and congregate. And they painted a runway because that's actually where the original runway was. So there's a, a lot of real history and a lot of steeped in history here in Florida with aviation. And I think that's awesome. Um, but going back to your career, now you're, you were sitting inside the aircraft. You mentioned you were able to finish your bachelor's. So now you moved into becoming a uh, an officer but did you decide that was it for airplanes well i wanted to go and um, go through undergraduate pilot training upt but by the time i graduated from there i would be six months too old and they said virtually there are no waivers and so i got the next best thing i got to backseat in a lot of uh, fighter aircraft and i was on board um, weapons director so we had a choice. We could either sit in a dark room where there was a scope and track the, ta- uh, the tactics as they developed and controlled them, or we could be in the back of the fighter uh, doing that. And so obviously my choice was going to be the back seat of the fighter anytime I could. So explain that to me, because I think I didn't understand this at first, what you just mentioned, what a weapons director is. It makes sense on the ground, but but the person, there's somebody in the air that's directing the battle? Is that what it is? We could do it either way, and um, the last job that I had, uh, last flying job, I was a Soviet aggressor. So what we would do is we would study Soviet tactics, and we would replicate those for our forces so we would go on uh, two-week deployments, and the first week they couldn't stand us because we were the enemy. And then when they saw what we were doing, they wanted to be our new best friend the second week to try to figure out how to defeat it. So we replicated Soviet tactics, and we could either do that from a radar scope or we could control it from uh, the air. And so um, Soviet style of control of airplanes is very directive. And, for example, the controller was make or break in some of those tactics uh, because that's the way the Soviets did it. Uh, We watched the Soviets and developed our tactics based on that. And this one particular tactic, for example, we watched for a long time, and we couldn't figure out why in the world they would be doing that. And each time there was a little bit of variation, so we thought they were trying to perfect it. But we went to Berlin, and uh, we had a site there that was on a hill uh, called Marienfeld, and we could take a look at the East Germans doing the same thing. And when we saw the East Germans doing that same tactic, we figured out that the Soviets couldn't get it right, but the East Germans did because they were much better uh, controllers and um, flyers. And so based on that, we came back kind of chuckling that – now we know what it was supposed to be because we've seen it done right. And so we um, deployed those tactics. And most of the time, their tactics were to outnumber. So we would have, for example, uh, in the largest scenarios, uh, it was F-5 aircraft at the time. So we would take the F-5s and have six of them. And whether we were flying against F-15s or 16, they were limited to four because of that outnumbering. And so trying to keep track, if you're in an F-15 or F-16, of six airplanes uh, and those tactics, uh, you'd have to watch it develop and hope you didn't select one that was a decoy because that was what a lot of their tactics were revolving around as deception. 
And so if you were the decoy and you locked your radar on it, you're tracking somebody that's not going to play. And then somebody else comes in as a stinger and electronically shoots you, then you're out of the fight. So typically when they uh, get, um, we called it killed, but electronically uh, targeted, you'd have to aileron roll to indicate that you're no longer playing. So anybody trying to engage you doesn't waste their time. And you would go out uh, to a recovery point and regenerate, and provided there was enough fuel left, you could come back and re-engage as a, um, we call them spitters, because you've spit out of the fight, and then you come back in and re-engage. This is fascinating to hear all this. this is like another world, um, you know, that, that we're not used to hearing about, you know, civilians. And uh, these these different engagements, these quote-unquote fights that you're having, or simulated flights, uh, where does this happen? I mean, where do you actually do this? Well, know? there are um, military operating areas, and usually they're not in restricted areas. So that's why um, I'm a little bit more observant going through a MOA, and I want to talk to air traffic control to make sure that if the MOA is hot, then there's a good possibility there's fighters uh, maneuvering in there against each other. Or even if it's something like a T-6 Texan in there, I still want to watch out because rapid altitude changes are possible. And um, they don't necessarily knock everything off if you enter. ATC may advise that you've entered the airspace at your own risk. And so their primary purpose is not to watch out for you. Um, the only thing they're going to try to do is make sure that if they see you or have you on radar, that they try to avoid you. But they're out there doing training, and there is a lot of um, high-intensity maneuvering going on. So if a MOA's hot, I go around it. I don't go through it. So in general, this is great information for those of us that uh, fly around MOAs, uh, is to talk to that facility, you know, the, the controlling facility, and ask them, you know, is it hot? If, is it, if it is, then, yeah, maybe uh, we should think about going around it. Well, the airliners do that a lot. I mean, you, you go around it when you're flying IFR, and why not do it when we're flying VFR? Yeah, I've, I've had some people that don't want the inconvenience of going around, but I always do if it's a hot MOA because – they're not going to necessarily tell you what's in there um, operating. It could be a couple of helicopters uh, doing some training at low out, uh, lower altitudes. But I'm not comfortable with taking my chances on it being a fighter or a highly man- maneuverable training area. So in the MOAs, we, we can actually uh, look those up online uh, in our apps uh, a lot of times we can look those up there's restricted mm-hmm. areas uh, there's MOAs and it's pretty easy to find out who the controlling agency is on our charts it is it is most of the uh, software I believe will allow you to just hover over that area or uh, click on it and it will tell you all about it same as TFRs so it'll give you quite a bit of information now um, the restricted areas usually there's a lot more to them um, if it is active, then that may be bombing runs that they're doing and probably going to be low altitude like here at Avon Park. Uh, that was one of our areas for a while uh, near um, central Florida. And so there's no telling what's going to be going on in there um, as opposed to just a MOA in there for maybe intercept training with no maneuvering. 
So, uh, and this is an important point because in the MOAs, do we need a clearance to go through? No. No. But in a restricted area, you do, and you're probably not going to get one. And because it, restricted area is a restricted area, you can contact the controlling agency. Uh, I wouldn't even, well, you can try, but I, I wouldn't normally bother with it. But one of the things that's important, you just mentioned about bombing runs. Restricted areas, especially places that have bombing runs, like the Central Florida, uh, you have them up in, in the New Jersey area, New York areas. They, um, a lot of times they have shelves that come pretty close to the ground, and they're not quite on the ground. They could be 1,500 feet above the ground. Correct. And, and you could you can get in trouble because you know with your certificate, not just safety, but your certificate, and bump into one of those really easily. Oh, yeah. And um, there's something uh, interesting that I've discovered living in Central Florida. One of the TFRs, the one over Disney, you don't have to avoid it if you're talking to air traffic control. But a lot of people don't read the entire TFR. So on these MOAs and restricted areas and TFRs, pull it up and read the whole thing, and you may have some surprises there. I thought a TFR, you would not fly uh, without permission, but it's automatic for Disney's TFR. If you're talking to air traffic control, you don't even have to tell them anything. You just tell them that you're going direct Orlando or wherever, and if you intersect it, that's fine. Right, and that's another important point, is a lot of times uh, we tend to fly around a lot of airspace we don't need to. And sometimes the, the TFRs, like you said, uh, baseball games, et cetera, mm-hmm. a lot of times we see TFRs, but in reality, especially if you have the graphics, they're not actually, they're not active at that point either. So a lot of people go around these and they're not even, you know, they don't have to. Or they, they can if they just contact the controlling agency. Yeah, they do. But uh, the good thing about doing that uh, is you get more flying time. Th- this is always good. More <laughs> flying time is really important. That's so, so go ahead and don't look it up and just fly around it and you get extra flying time. It's hard to do in certain places in the country, you know, especially in Florida, you know, because there are so many out there, but, uh, but, and everywhere, really. I mean, even in New Jersey, where I grew up next to, you know, I, I grew up next to this place called Bedminster, New Jersey, and there's always a TFR popping up because there's a presidential TFR, and everybody mm-hmm. has been through that. So, the most important lesson is check your TFRs, and those apps are wonderful things uh, because they actually update all the time, but always, if you can, you know, call a briefer. Yeah, and I guess I'm a risk-averse person. I have about three of those things displayed in the cockpit at any time. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people don't realize the fact that you can actually get this from many different sources, your iPad. Also, if you depending on the electronics that you have in your airplane, I don't have anything really sophisticated in mind, so, <laughs> so my iPad's it. But uh, you can actually find out this many different ways, three different ways in some cases. Well, see, that's how I sell all the new gadgets to my, uh, the idea of getting them to my wife. As I explained, that this is risk mitigation. So if I have one fail, then I may have to get another one. And so then when I've got two, there could be a third one. So triple redundancy uh, is, is a good excuse to go buy things, too. I, I like it. I'm going to use that line. I think I'm going to use that when I start <laughs> buying stuff for my plane. Uh, but before we get into the GA, you just mentioned your airplane. Uh, let's kind of finish off this this. Uh, career in aviation as far as the military and uh, yeah, I think you have some pretty cool stories when you uh, transition to the civilian world flying general aviation um, some of the other fighters that you were in uh, you weapons um, director you did some uh, missile firing etc the aggressor aircraft were F5 and F16 mm-hmm. uh, but prior to that I was in uh, F4s and F15s and so I would um, gain what they call or beg what they call incentive flights and so a lot of my friends were pilots, and um, I controlled them 
in other uh, scenarios before I went into the aggressor program. And so based on that, I would tell them anytime they have a bucket open, I'd like to fill it. And so got a lot of uh, rides on F4s or NF4s and F15s. So in these rides, do you actually get to control the aircraft? Or do you get to fly the aircraft? Let me give you the book answer. Okay. Uh, the the <laughs> official answer is no. Uh, you don't. You're not piloting control, so they might let you um, check out how things work. Uh, just put it that way to where right, right. follow you, them on the controls maybe yeah you, you <laughs> could uh, follow them on the controls and uh they'll give you a, a little bit of freedom on that so yeah. well we we won't put you in an awkward position there but although we probably already did but but one of the things that people don't realize is that you're in there with the you're doing all the same maneuvers so you you had to get mm-hmm. gotten some training for all that especially g-forces holy cow well we we did the the first one i went on um shortly after commissioning uh i fell asleep in the debrief it was so exhausting uh with all the maneuvering uh even though you have a g-suit um it still takes a toll on you so there's a lot of conditioning that takes place and that's when i decided to start going to the gym just to build up the tolerance a little bit and so then i got to where i could make it all the way through the debrief and kept going to where it was fun but it really is um, physically demanding Uh, and the people i flew with were great they would let me know what they were about to do uh, the only time that that didn't happen was when we were in air combat maneuvering. Uh, we had dissimilar um, air combat training and similar. So ACT and DACT were uh, things that we did. So they couldn't give me advance warning. But if we're out there getting ready to do what's called BFM, basic fighter maneuvers, then they would give me warning, okay, we're about to go into a high G turn to the right or something like that because it was rather scripted in that so the unscripted when you had to be in pretty good shape for just to stay awake um the you have the bags if you need them and also (laughs) you get a nap occasionally um the f-16 was the only one that was limited uh by g's as far as the system wouldn't let you go over nine g's Oh, okay. But 9Gs, most people are asleep at 5 or 6, and those who are conditioned, 7, 8. If you're up to 9, you're really in great shape um, if you can stay awake. Now, shape doesn't mean that you're not round. So if you're um, not the bodybuilder, perfect shape, it's a completely different thing. You see guys going to the gym, and you think, no, yeah, they do okay. They're not G-conditioned physically. And so there's a big difference between that and just being in shape. So how do you how do you get conditioned for that for someone who's interested in getting into aerobatics? Well, I was told by people who do the aerobatics uh, that they start their season very slowly in practice, and you just kind of build up a tolerance, and then you keep pressing it a little bit more each time. And basically, it's the same thing. Uh, in military training, you start out in a very slow aircraft, relatively slow, and you build up, and uh, eventually uh, you're in fighter leaded training. By then, you're in great shape for the Gs. So they're not going to put you anything that would over-G your body uh, consistently. Plus, if you're in the front seat, you've got control of how many Gs you pull. And so if you start yelling, knock it off, it means that you've reached your limits 
and everybody needs to disengage and go away from you while you regather yourself. Now, sometimes it's an ego thing, but uh, hopefully judgment prevails that they don't press the limits and um, go into G-lock. And that that be that's one of those things as far as uh, briefing and safety, you know, yeah. is uh, in that the, all this crew resource management we talk about. There's there's always always that part of the safety briefing where, you know, we don't want to push ourselves too far to, or past our own personal limits. Well, now now that I'm in general aviation, the one thing that strikes me the most about the briefings that we went through before each flight is you had your standard briefing of the tactics or whatever you're going to do that day. But before you left, whoever was leading it and briefing had to brief the emergency procedure of the day. And so that was ingrained in your head. And each time you flew a mission, it was a different one. And so I've uh, made a habit before I go fly. I take a look at emergency procedures out of my POH before I go fly and make sure that, okay, if this happens, I don't have to pick up a checklist. It's pretty much from memory. Then I use the checklist for backup that I didn't miss anything. I think that's a that's a great example to to lead with is that you should be looking at not just your checklist but possibly some more expanded emergency procedures like in your manuals. Yes, absolutely. Um, I've uh, had a couple of declared emergencies, but they weren't anything that rattled me to the point of non-function. Um, I've had gear not come down on the commander, and I've also had. Uh, 10,000 feet, a puff of smoke coming out of one of the um, black boxes. And so um, I went through those things from memory and not a problem with any of them. So now getting back, getting into general aviation, we'll finish out your career in the military first. You wound up in special ops, right? And then- I did, and it was an involuntary thing. I, I w- didn't have any special skills, but they were needing a commander. And basically, it was to keep everybody out of jail and functioning. And so my job was kind of like the warden of a prison to keep them uh, in line the way they were supposed to be. And I had a great assignment canceled so I could go do that. I had an assignment to Hawaii as the exercise director for all of the Pacific. So it included Thailand, Philippines, uh, Hawaii, everywhere, Korea. And so that assignment got canceled, and I asked him, I said, okay, what am I going to do? And they said, well, you've been, been by name requested, so here's what you're going to do. And I told him, I said, I'm not special ops. By the way, who by name requested me? I don't know anybody in special ops. Well, come to find out, I had been on temporary duty and had a few beers with some guys from special ops that I didn't know they were special ops, and they by name requested me because they thought I was an okay guy and would do well and so i fortunately i've used that to get out of trouble since i've been out of the military but i had no special skills and i was just there to make sure that um, everybody behaved and that they were functioning so beware who you who you drink with and who yeah you, you have your to name be to. careful <laughs> I, i've had a few drinks with submariners and special ops and so uh each time it had a little bit of a twist of um good fortune and maybe some unfortunate things with it so <laughs> well this was fortunate i think because that was a great end of your career um mm-hmm. and where did you actually uh, retire from was there a station i was at holloman air force base and uh during that uh, time there um the um other guy we were kind of like the sheepdog clocking in in the cartoons 
um, we had a, de- uh, a detachment down in South America, and one of us would be commander and director of operations at each location. So we would do that rotation. So 90 days in, 90 days out. And so I did that for two years, and I had all the fun I could handle. And so that's when I retired. So that's been one one amazing career. I mean, you started at what rank? E1. E1. Mm-hmm. And then you wound up retiring at? I, I retired as a captain. I had a number for major, uh, but I wanted to start a second career. And so I turned it down and got out. Plus, there were some... Um, things of endangering family by releasing sensitive information out of the pentagon and it um i signed up to be endangered but not my family right and so i retired pretty much on the spot then gotcha yeah and from there you had a successful career uh and uh, in a different field yeah i've um, owned a business for the last uh, 25 years and um i do i teach about 74 different classes so a lot of them being project management. And so I do a lot of training consulting. And during this period, though, uh, you still had the bug for aviation. So oh. how did how did you go from that to general aviation? Tell us that story. Well, I was living near Birmingham, Alabama, and I had to go to Mobile, Alabama to teach class. And so it's not worth it to fly commercially. And so I um, drove to Mobile and back. Well, that was almost 10 hours of my life wasted. And south of Montgomery, there's very little to see. And so based on that, I decided to go get my ticket. So I called around different flight schools and finally found a kid that seemed like he had a grasp on reality. And I knew he was building time to be able to go to the airlines. And so I talked to him and told him, I said, well, what's next? And he said, well, come out for a discovery flight. And I said, well, what's that? Because he hasn't asked me my background, so I'm just playing dumb. And so he said, oh, that's where you come out and you fly the airplane for maybe 30 minutes and see if you like this. And then you could pursue it and get lessons after that. So we made uh, arrangements to come out there. And I went out and I um, checked into the FBO and Brandon came out and said, okay, let's, let's go do this. So he goes out there and starts his pre-flight, and he's explaining to me, this is a flap, this is an aileron, this is the rudder, and he's doing all this, and I'm just smiling and nodding my head like I'm absorbing the information that I already knew. And so at the end of that, he stopped, and I said, well, uh, I guess you're about finished, aren't you? He said, yes. So, well, what's next? He said, well, you get in here on the left side, uh, I'll get in the right side, and we'll go take the discovery flight. And I said, okay. So he's running his um, checks, and he finishes his run-up, and we take off. And when he gets a little bit of altitude, he said, well, would you like to fly it for a little bit? And I said, well, what are my limitations? He said, uh, shiny side up, dirty side down. I said, okay. So he's looking at me kind of skeptically that either he doesn't understand what that means or he's um, just kind of letting it go. And so I put it through power on stalls, power off stalls, um, turns around a point, different maneuvers for the 30 minutes. I want to get my money's worth in this discovery flight. And he's sitting there, his mouth dropped open, and he's just got this blank look uh, the whole time we're doing these. And so finally he said, okay, uh, we've spent all the time we can. Um, Do you want to land it or you want me to? I told him your airplane. 
And so he took back over and recognized the positive control. That apparently something's going on here. And so we get off the runway and uh, barely get off the runway and stop on a taxiway. He said, okay, what's your background? And I said, well, I've been around, around airplanes a little bit. And he said, no. He said, there's more than that. He said, so what's your background? I said, well, I was avionics for 10 years, um, master technician, master instructor, got a commission, um, flew in some aircraft, um, both um, bombers, cargo, tankers, uh, fighters. He said, well, what was your last airplane? I told him backseat of an F-16. So he wanted to start talking about signing me off to go take the check ride. And I told him, I said, look, first off, I don't have hours because I had a 25-year break between the first instruction I had and now. I said, the other thing is you and I both are going to have to be comfortable before I'm willing to go for a check ride. So um, we went through that and signed me off for the check ride. And then I got a Southwest Airlines uh, pilot who was a designated examiner. So uh, we talked for three and a half hours just shooting the breeze. And then finally, I told him, I said, we have to go to the airplane and get the check ride out of the way. I've got um, to fly out of town. He said, okay, um, when, when's your flight? And I told him. He said, oh, well, what airline? And I told him. And he said, where are you going? And I told him. And he was the one that was going to fly me to my next <laughs> assignment after giving me the check ride. Well, that's uh, – wow. Uh, talk about a coincidence. Yeah. So during this whole check ride, you know, going back to this, you actually had some experience flying and understand rules. But one of the reasons you want to go through this training, I'm assuming, is you didn't do a lot of GA flying. So no. you needed to get all that, all the rules, the airspace and, and everything else uh, up to snuff. Not just the sta- It's not just stick and rudder in general. It's not stick and rudder at all. Well, I, we had, uh, as, as weapons directors, we were tested on airspace constantly. So we had uh, our quarterly and um, monthly requirements we had to meet. So um, I probably have more knowledge about the airspaces at that time around where I was because we had to know all the intricacies so that way we didn't get anybody in trouble. So being on the receiving end of this in general aviation, it's a little bit easier. I have to keep myself out of trouble, but not everybody else. Right, yeah. But so then you had this incredible knowledge of, of all the airspace in the area. It's just operating from a GA standpoint that was different. Yes. Uh, mostly what we looked at for airspace training was the surrounding area, but we were more interested in warning areas and MOAs and also the restricted areas. Now, we talked about restricted and MOAs. Warning areas, uh, usually the, those are missile firings. Mm-hmm. So um, if you have a big enough signature – it may decide to come near you. Right. Now, they do patrols before, uh, like we used to have to do boat patrol. We'd plot every one of the boats out in the Gulf before we did the missile firing. But then if you stray in there um, when it's active as uh, general aviation, you could be a target accidentally. Yeah, and that's uh, something also important in these warning areas where you go up. They're all over. 
yep. you know, not just on the coast. I think a lot of people think they're on the coast, but they're in interior also. Uh, and you can blunder into one of these uh, warning areas, and they, they have to stop their missile firing, but you don't want to have that restriction or you don't want to run into that area and have that risk. Yeah, and you're probably going to be in a little bit of trouble if, if they detect you and they uh, knock off the missile firing. That gets pretty expensive. So not saying they would uh, charge you, but uh, more than likely, um, if you don't pay the dollar amounts, you're going to pay other consequences yeah. that aren't worth it. That's for sure. So now the GA, I'm trying to understand the the purpose for a GA in your life sounds like it was more for utility or is it a hobby or, or, or would you say both at that point? Well, they're always saying that you need uh, three airplanes. And so <laughs> I've, I've gotten two of the three and the third one is um, still up for negotiation. But uh, I got one for business travel and it's Commander 114 and I've got one for fun that if there's a little bit of a headwind, school buses pass me on the interstate, <laughs> but I don't care. It's more flying time, and it's a lot of fun. So, so what was the first airplane? How did, and, and let's bring your spouse into this, too, because all of us that have spouses that don't fly, uh, how do we convince them to, to get an airplane? Well, having a lot of years as a project manager, a lot of things and projects are based on negotiation. So I approach those things, and... Um, I knew my wife a week and two days before we got married. We had one date, and we met at a funeral. So after 47 years, I've learned a little bit about her. I didn't know much when we got (laughs) married, but uh, now I know a lot of the ins and outs of the uh, discussions and how to do things. So um, after I got my license, I got it in a Cessna 172. I flew a Diamond DA-40 and uh, Cessna 150, but the final check was in a 172. A friend of mine had a 172, and he was um, experiencing some things to where he wasn't getting enough flying time, so he asked me if I'd be willing to exercise his airplane. So I would rent it from him occasionally. So we were in central Alabama, and it was about five hours to the beach, and we'd like to go to the beach once a month. So the standard routine, I'd pick my wife up at work on Friday afternoon, Uh, We would go to the beach, we'd get there late, we'd get enough um, groceries for breakfast, and then be able to resume that, and we didn't have time to have dinner on Sunday before we left, because she had to be back at work Monday morning. So, based on that, we went one weekend, and it was 10 hours total, and then coming back um, was the standard routine, and so, based on that... um, I told her midweek after that, I said, I want to go back to the beach. She said, I don't want to do 10 hours of driving there and back. I said, well, I got a deal for you. Trust me. I'll pick you up Friday at work. So we, um, I picked her up, went to Bessemer Airport, got my friend's airplane, and we flew down there. In short order, we were down there, had a rental car waiting on us at the FBO, and we had a nice dinner instead of scrambling to get set up. And then on uh, Sunday, Whenever we started to leave, um, she said, well, I guess it's time to go back. I said, no, let's go have a great dinner, and then we'll fly back, and um, you'll be back in plenty of time. We'll be back before 10 o'clock, not a problem. So after I did that, I asked her, I said, what would you think about that? She said, that was great. So then I presented her a, a cost-benefits analysis on buying an airplane and um, gave her all the information And I said, we could do this every stinking weekend if we wanted to. 
so she committed to buy an airplane now i um got an airplane the commander 114 that had been sitting for 14 years it had been in a hangar and had not been flown they got uh the guy that owned it got mad when they did the annual because they broke the windshield so they argued about who was going to have to repair it and so based on that he lost interest in flying and just let it sit there paying insurance and hangar fees for 14 years so i guess i got lucky i contacted him at the right time people have been contacting him for a long time and he had been turning them all down and so based on that um i asked him i got him to finance it for a year with uh, prime interest rate 11 payments and then a balloon payment at the end so i bought it way under value after i'd had the pre-buy done and there was no corrosion anything to worry about and so when i made the final payment um he said well glad you got it hope you get it flying soon i said i don't know what you're talking about charlie i've been flying it for 11 months he said well i'm sure that expense uh, that engine was expensive i said didn't have a bad engine he said well i tried all day long to start it one day i said charlie the mags were stuck and so all they did was free that and rebuild the mags and we're good so the horrified look on his face he'd basically given away his airplane because i got it for a third of eref and so i've been rebuilding it ever since um, going through everything because everything was original it had 1926 hours when i bought it so Tell us a little bit about the Commander, because uh, you said the 114. Luckily, I was uh, able to work for a dealer that was here in Tampa, and uh, what a beautiful plane. It's it's roomy. But what is it that, that attracted you uh, the, to the Commander, other than the price and the convenience of it being there? What are the things that you like the most about it? Well, the things both Linda and I like are uh, the width of the cockpit, because I've, I've flown a lot in Moonies with a friend of mine, and pretty much we're shoulder to shoulder and have to turn into contortions to get something out of the back seat. Uh, second thing that we both like, there's two doors. She likes having her own door. And so those two things, uh, the only disadvantage to the airplane from her aspect is that first step to get up there is a little bit high. So I just carry around a little three-step ladder, and so anytime she's getting in there because um, she needs that ladder she doesn't really want me helping her Uh, so she'd prefer to do it herself so that three-step ladder works pretty well plus we carry the dogs in it we've got a 108 pound boxer along with a 65 pound boxer and so uh, they like the ladder too being able to get up here instead of me picking them up and throwing out my back how do they like flying they love it yeah uh, yeah, they look outside for a little bit, and then they just go to sleep, and it's boring after a while, but didn't bother them at all, and I've rigged a harness to go and attach that to the cargo strap, I mean the cargo hooks in the back, and so I had uh, the heaviest leather leashes um, made with uh, clasp at both ends, and that way, if anything happened that they got excited, they can't make it up front, Right. so it's right there to where they're able to lay down and they're able to stick their muzzle in between the seats up front, but that's as far as they can go. 
That's a great idea. So they they enjoy the flying, so you bring the whole family along. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that that's really cool. The Commander is, uh, like I said, I, I really enjoy the aircraft. I didn't get to really fly it much myself, uh, but everybody I know that has one lo- loves them. It has a retractable gear, a little bit extra on the maintenance, mm-hmm. uh, So and uh, obviously a little bit more on the insurance, too, I'm assuming. Yeah, it, it wasn't bad. I know the insurance has gone up for a lot of people coming into an airplane that's um, complex, but um, with this one, I had to get 10 hours with the instructor, and the rates haven't changed that much the entire time I've had it. Wow. So you have the commander. So you said three airplanes uh, is what you really want. There's some, something else you looked at. Well, I've got a, a Taylor Craft, and it was a little bit easier sell with my wife on this one because we had been to Oshkosh, and a friend of uh, that I grew up with and went to high school with and also was an F-16 pilot, um, instructor pilot. He's the um, air show uh, for the Warbirds. He does that uh, because he's got a T-34 mentor. And so we went up to Oshkosh one time, and we stayed um, there in our recreational vehicle. But we went over and uh, had something to do with Dave, uh, Dave's group every night. So we'd sit around their um, motorhome and either cook out, uh, have a beer or two, talk to some other pilots, a typical Oshkosh thing. So my wife really enjoyed that week there in the Warbird area. And so um, whenever I wanted this second airplane, our mechanic on the field had lost his medical, and he was moving. And so I asked him, I said, "Uh, what do you want for it? And he told me. And so I called my wife, and I told her, I said, "Um, look, I've got an opportunity to buy an old Warbird, and it's a very good price. And it was a trainer in Ohio during World War II. And it's a 1943 Taylor Craft, and it goes back to their sign-in for the pilots learning how to fly. So she didn't ask me how much it was, didn't ask me anything else about it. She just wanted to know, would that qualify us to get in the Warbird area of Oshkosh? And when I told her, yes, at the low end of that, yes. And she said, go ahead. And I said, don't you want to know how much it is? She said, no, not really. If it'll get us in the Warbird area, go get it. Well, that's awesome. And so now you park in the Warbird area. We can, yes. Yeah, and uh, haven't that, been to Oshkosh enough lately, but that's probably true for a lot of people. Well, you could actually get to Sun and Fun. Yes, on the Warbird area there. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little more about that. You said a trainer, and this was used. Uh, was this specific one used uh, during the war? Or is this well, there were primarily three, and uh, at the time, based on being Army Air Corps, uh, they had a general come out and watch them try to land them, and the students. Uh, this has bungee cord on the um, landing gear suspension, so you can bounce it pretty good, and it probably will recover okay. And um, so based on that, um, he was watching them land and hop all over the place, and since they were painting Army olive drab, um, he called them grasshoppers. And so there were three airplanes in that category. Two of them are still in the category, but nobody ever refers to them as grasshoppers. Uh, the Piper Cub and the uh, Champ and also the Taylor Craft were all three part of the Grasshopper series. So since Champ and Cub had a neat nickname, uh, the only one that's typically referred to that way now as Grasshopper is the Taylor Craft. Oh, wow. And this is a Lima 2 Mike. Um, and there's some pretty good pictures of uh, this type on the um, Internet. 
Yeah, and we'll have some of these pictures of your aircraft right here mm-hmm. at stuckmikeavcast.com. Yep. And uh, as a matter of fact, three of those, one of the commander and also uh, the other one's the uh, F5, I think it was. Yes. And uh, that'll be that'll be really cool to have that up on there. But tell tell us as far as the operating. I'm assuming that this is a lot less to operate than the commander. Well, it it typically is, but the parts are becoming harder and harder to obtain. So uh, I put the Taylorcraft in annual in March, mm-hmm. and I'm getting it out tomorrow morning. And the reason for that is September. Oh boy. Yeah, the reason for that is I searched high and low for one cylinder that was um, not holding compression. Uh, And so it had an A65 in it originally and was converted to an A75, which isn't a big conversion. But I looked all over the earth and I could not find a uh, cylinder. And so what I had to do is buy an STC conversion to an O200 so it's a new top half that's coming out, and basically what I paid for the airplane, I'm paying for the, the annual and the uh, top half and wow. everything. So the bills have been pretty much identical of the purchase, and then I've had this for a few years, and so it catches up eventually. You can't find parts. No, and that, you know, it's interesting because we, we had an STC done on our plane, and it's um, one of the reasons is the engine. We wanted to, you know, beef up the power on it. Mm-hmm. Compliance with the STCs, I'm finding, is, is something that's important. You have to actually read those STCs very carefully because even though the person that did the STC or owns the STC put it in the aircraft doesn't necessarily mean they did it properly and that's i that's something i just i just discovered so when you do yeah. have something an upgrade or whatever if you have an stc put in make sure you read it yeah and it could be very time consuming to get that done legally um after you've had someone else prior owner attempt to do it so in this there's a three-way handshake going on with this one tomorrow morning and that's between the maintenance shop and the engine shop and me so we're going to make sure all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted uh, as much as we can. But it's an approved STC because you can't find, um, can't easily find 65 or 75 cylinders anymore. Right. They just, a lot of them went to airboats and then there are people buying them up because they're in short supply and providing a whole new engine. So this will still qualify into the uh, Warbird area? Yeah, uh, they don't look under the hood typically. They look at the origin of the airplane and the logbooks and things like that. And uh, uh, having uh, L2M Taylorcraft, it automatically is going to allow you to be in there. It's not a show airplane because it's not original. Right. Okay. So, uh, but it's really cool looking. Uh, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and it looks it looks like. So when are we going to go fly? We can fly soon. Yeah, real soon. Yeah. And and now got, that you're, I've got to you're do here the, in Lakeland. I've got to do the engine burning, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, we're actually here doing this interview in Lakeland and in uh, our new studio here in our home. And one of the things that uh, I've, I've found is it's a great place to be in Central Florida. A lot of people into airplanes and uh, and people wanting to share the, the joy of flight, and that's one thing we're going to do. Yeah, I hate going up with an empty seat, and yes. so I'll go and round up people, but um, – recently had a house built here in lakeland um so this is my last stop i joke around and tell people that um it's either here uh nursing home or dirt nap one of the three (laughs) and so uh don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon but uh this is our last stop is what i'm expecting so um i searched around for airports and found a good one 
and, and all set. And you have two airplanes that are, are going to be a lot of fun. You mentioned a third. You need a third. Well, one. the, the third one, um, I got a seaplane rating a number of years ago, and that's where I do all my flight reviews is out at Jack Brown, and uh, we go fly. And so I'm scheduled later this month to uh, go out there with this Super Cub. Uh, I flew them all to get my rating um, because the Cubs weren't available. Um, and they couldn't figure out why skinny guys flying them all because usually that's the guys who need to have a little bit of extra uh, allowance <laughs> <at> there. <laughs> so I flew the Cub on the last flight review, and I'm going to fly the Super Cub that they have on this next one. And so that's how I get in my seaplane time and can justify it pretty easily. So well, That's awesome. So flying the Taylor Craft makes it really easy to fly the Cubs on floats because they operate basically the same right so you you really are one of these people that just loves aviation i mean obviously you're out there trying all different things what's what's going to be the next rating uh i'm going to finish up my instrument believe it or not i got within five hours and i did this in a two-week period up in central alabama with an instructor a friend of mine and i flew my other friends mooney for it because his is better equipped for avionics and so I got within five hours and had to go back to work. And so that's been two years ago, and I just haven't gone back. So I'm going to probably do something like the weekend course to finish up or go back with the original flight instructor and get current again cool. and then go for the check ride. So awesome. instruments probably next. Well, gosh, we'll have to go up and do some flying, some instrument flying. I know a few things about that, and uh, be, be uh, just a pleasure. And this is this has been actually a pleasure. I know we got to close up here, but um, one of the things that we didn't get to talk about much is I noticed you have two airplanes. Is some of the costs in flying. What advice would you have to somebody that's thinking about, you know, they would love to have an airplane. I, I'm actually tickled to death now that I have one. Uh, there's a lot of things that I can give advice on, but I'm kind of a newbie again. Yeah. So what would you say to someone like me that's that's new to the flying thing again and owns well, an airplane? Uh, let's take the Commander, for example, because right now the Taylor Craft's not a very good example no. based on the <laughs> engine work. But uh, on the Commander, after sitting for 14 years, what I did was get an excellent pre-buy. So he went through and scoped it and saw there was no corrosion and did a great pre-buy on it. And then what I did was allocate twice as much as I would expect for the annual. And it didn't turn out to be anywhere near that. Gaskets, uh, tires, things like that had deteriorated. But uh, I didn't need but about half of that amount extra I allocated. And so um, the commander has not been a problem at all for maintenance. The Annual is a little bit more expensive because it's retractable and um, it's got a constant speed prop. And so based on those two things, a little bit more. Um, but I would say that uh, keeping up with the maintenance is going to be key. And so don't let th- don't defer things um, and let them continue to deteriorate. Uh, I put in an EDM 830 because the engine had 1900 hours when I got it. I've currently got 2,600. I've replaced four jugs, but I only replace the jugs as necessary. And I do the uh, soap samples every oil change. And I don't necessarily wait until that 50 hours uh, in there. Uh, When the oil is starting to discolor because of the age of the engine, I go ahead and change the oil. I change the filter. I cut open the filter, take a look at it. And so, uh, and then I send off that sample. So based on the EDM-830 and the jug replacement when they started having a little bit of compression leakage um, and the 
keeping up with the and soap i'm sure everybody listening to this knows what it is but it's a uh, oil analysis um so the one that i do it with has a complete history of the airplane and uh also i take the information off the edm 830 and and uh, there's a website i'm sure most of you are aware of savvy aviation Mm -hmm. he uses it to gather information but he'll also do some analytics for you and tell you whether or not things are going and i never run the cylinders over 400 interesting so between all those things the engine life has been pretty good and the cosmetic stuff i'm replacing as i go i've done the carpet the interior uh, as far as all the plastic the leather so as an owner it sounds like the the engine is is one of your big expenses the avionics can be because you want to add new uh, but it's really as far as, as recurring maintenance, you have to really keep on top of the engine. Yeah, um, I, w- I would say the engine is my biggest concern because an IO540 is around 50 grand plus, depending on what you do. If you get one rebuilt or zero time, uh, I'm very concerned about that. So that's why I keep up with it uh, through the EDM 830 and temperatures and everything else and the samples. But um, avionics upgrades, I've deferred those until uh, my next um, upgrade is paint. Um, I had the wings repainted because there was a little bit of bare aluminum. But this is 1976 paint job. Right. So it's done very well, but I had the uh, wings redone. So uh, either this fall or spring, I'm going to go ahead and get the airplane painted that'll complete the cosmetic stuff and so then it's just making sure i have the money set aside for the engine if i need it but avionics are the next upgrade and i've looked at a lot of the experimental avionics that now been approved and so that's probably the way i'll go well you know uh roy we hopefully will have you back on and and to talk a little bit more about some of these upgrades that we've had and uh you know i know we're up on our time but i really that, you know, I've enjoyed this. Is there any other advice you give to somebody who's looking into the possibility of ownership as far as what are some, maybe the three most important things to do before you buy? I would say probably the biggest one is the um, pre-buy. Get a good one from somebody you trust, not from the mechanic that's maintained the airplane for years uh, that belongs to the seller. Uh, another thing is go through the log books. Make sure you look for any missing segments and I would say uh, the third thing would be damage history. Uh, that old saying of uh, those who have made a gear up landing and those who will uh, is pretty much true. And so if they did the res- uh, inspection on the engine, tear down, that's going to be important. But look for any gaps in the logbooks uh, for any damage history or anything like that. Well, that's all great advice, and, and Roy, I really appreciate you coming here to talk to us. Well, it's been a pleasure, and I'll be glad to come back anytime. Uh, hangar flying is uh, something I love to do, and, and sharing in aviation, and also uh, anything having to do with the Air Force. You know, it's uh, this 
podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. And you you are really uh, somebody who actually represents that. And that's one of the reasons we love having you here on the, on the Stuck Mike Avcast. And can't wait to uh, talk to you again at The Land. Uh, the showcase, and that's going to be actually, like we said, in November. And uh, one of the things that I think is 14th through the 17th, we'll have a link on the website. 14th though. through 16th. 14th through 16th. Yeah, okay. they don't do Sundays. They, they don't do Sunday. Okay. Yeah. And so make sure you get out there, see us. We'll be there. Stuck My Gavcast will be there. We'll also have. Uh, uh, the people from Sun and Fun Radio will be there, and some of uh, Michael McClellan will be there from Stuck Mike Avcast. He's going to be doing some other announcing that he does outside of Stuck Mike. Yeah, he's, he's doing the um, uh, aircraft introductions right. as he did for a number of years before. So he'll be doing a different role, but we we make contact with him and go back and forth all the time. Yeah, it's a small world this aviation, and we kind of have a lot of crossover and uh, small but, but great. Yes, it is, and and we're we're going to put some of those pictures out there of your aircraft. Uh, the F five was on there, and also the the commander, and then uh, the grasshopper. Yeah, just keep in mind, I didn't own the F five. They just let me borrow it for a while. <laughs> they wouldn't let me take it with me when I left either. It'd be a lot of fun knowing <laughs> that. That's for sure. Yeah, Roy, thanks so much. And uh, you know, if you're listening right now, just remember that there's these are all. The advice we get from all of our guests is uh, something that I think is really important because we want people that are actually out there that are owners and, and people that are actually out there flying uh, to give us advice and prescient advice, that's for sure. So one of the things I, I really think is also important is to to look at what you're doing and try to learn from some of these other people that have been on here and also give us some advice too. StuckMikeAvcast at gmail.com. If there's something that you heard in this podcast that you want to make a comment on or if you know somebody that wants to be a guest or would be a good guest on the show, make sure you go check out the link to that, how to be a guest on the Stuck Mike Avcast. Roy, again, thanks so much for being here. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, I'm Carl Valeri with the Stuck Mike Avcast. Do, do me a favor after you listen to this podcast. You know, run out to the airport and take a look at an airplane. You know, this, this is all about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. And that's the part that I want to press today. It's, it's a lot about loving to fly. And if you listen to Roy and his story, you can actually hear that in what he talks about with aviation. We'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.